I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we examine the original languages of the Bible to discover the gospel truths that have been present within its pages since the beginning. Since the beginning of Exodus, and even before then, Israel has been waiting. God has promised to deliver his people. He's told them that Pharaoh will throw them out of Egypt. He's promised judgment on the nation that's taken them captive. They've been given instructions for Passover, instructions for matzah, instructions to plunder Egypt simply by asking for what they wanted. The promise to deliver has been given, and a call to come and to worship Hashem has been extended. And last week we read of the calm before the storm. Chapter 11 to 12 have recounted for us the last-minute preparations and events before the Passover, this great moment of redemption that was promised so long ago. Now we have in the beginning part of this chapter been shown what redemption means, and this revelation has come alongside the revelation of judgment as represented in the plagues. We've been given insight into our God as he models these traits, redemption and justice, perfectly for us and for all humanity. Because the truth is that Hashem wants to be in relationship with humanity. But in our current state, that's simply impossible. His desire is for heaven and earth to be united. But he has these inherent qualities of justice. And if justice were on its own, not a single one of us would survive. But Hashem's justice is tempered with mercy and compassion. And these things, combined with a desire for relationship, requires that Hashem create a path for redemption. But everything that's been promised in the past has kind of been on hold up to this point. Up until now, it would seem as if the promises that God had made were not being fulfilled. And God had revealed His power, He's revealed His authority, He's revealed even His promise and His plan and His characteristics. But from the ground, the execution has been over 400 years and nine plagues in the making. Up until now, it seems as though it's been mostly talk. I mean, sure, we've seen God move in some great ways, but his promise of redemption has not been fulfilled. And the promise isn't something that's new. This promise is an ancient promise. This promise was laid out in the terms of the covenant that was cut more than 400 years before. In Genesis 15, 13 through 16, and he said to Abraham, Know for certain that your seed are to be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. But the nation whom they serve I am going to judge, and afterward let them come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you are to go to your fathers in peace. You are to be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the crookedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now for some it might seem as if God is delaying, as if he has forgotten his covenant. 
It might seem as if God is cruel for allowing this slavery to continue as long as it has. But 2 Peter 3, 9 says that Hashem is not slow in regard to the promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so it is that everything that has been building since the covenant was cut with Abraham in Genesis 15, everything that's been building for the past 12 chapters of Exodus finally comes into focus. God's fulfillment of his promise is finally coming to pass. And as we read of it, it only takes a few verses to recount this fulfillment. The fulfillment of centuries of preparation and prophecy coalescing, and then in a single moment, everything changes. So let's read this Parsha and then discuss the implications of these ideas and more. Exodus 12, 29-51 And it came to be at midnight that Hashem struck all the firstborn of the land of Mitzrayim, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Mitzrites. And there was a great cry in Mitzrayim, for there was not a house where there was not a dead one. Then he called for Moshe and Aaron by night, and said, Arise, go out from the midst of my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go, serve Hashem as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go. Then you shall bless me too. And the Mitzrites were strong on the people to hasten to send them away out of the land, for they said, We are all dying. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their garments on their shoulders. And the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moshe, and they had asked from the Mitzrites objects of silver and objects of gold and garments. And Hashem gave the people favor in the eyes of the Mitzrites, so that they gave them what they asked, and they plundered the Mitzrites. And the children of Israel set out from Ramses to Sukkot about six hundred thousand men on foot besides the little ones. And a mixed multitude went up with them too, also flocks and herds, very much livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Mitzrayim, for it was not leavened, since they were driven out of Mitzrayim and had not been able to delay, nor had they prepared food for themselves. And the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Mitzrayim was four hundred and thirty years. And it came to be at the end of four hundred and thirty years, on that same day, it came to be that all the divisions of Hashem went out from the land of Mitzrayim. It is a night of watches unto Hashem, for bringing them out of the land of Mitzrayim. This is that night of watches unto Hashem, for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. And Hashem said to Moshe and Aaron, This is the law of the Pesach, no son of a stranger is to eat of it. But any servant, a man, has bought for silver. When you have circumcised him, then let him eat of it. A sojourner and a hired servant does not eat of it. It is eaten in one house. You are not to take any of the flesh outside the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel are to perform it. And when a stranger sojourns with you and shall perform the Pesach to Hashem, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and perform it. And he shall be as a native of the land but let no uncircumcised eat of it. There is one Torah for the native-born and for the stranger who sojourns among you. And all the children of Israel did as Hashem commanded Moshe and Aaron, so they did. And it came to be on that same day that Hashem brought the children of Israel out of the land of Mitzrayim according to their divisions. As this Parsha opens from verse 29 to 41, the text contains a simple recounting of the fulfillment of many of the things that God 
has promised that would occur from previous chapters and even the previous book in Scripture. In verse 29, Hashem comes down and He struck the firstborn of Egypt throughout the land. And this was something that was promised back in Exodus 4.22. In verse 30, there is a great cry in all the land of Egypt. This is a promise from the previous chapter of Exodus 11.6. Verses 31-33, through 33, Pharaoh and all of the people cast Israel out of Egypt. In fact, in the text, their leaving is steeped in the language of their leaving being a blessing for Egypt and for Pharaoh because they recognize that all of these things that have occurred in the past have happened because of Israel. This is something that was promised back in Exodus 3.20. In verse 34, they leave in such a hurry so as not to have prepared bread for the road, and they leave only with unleavened bread. That's from Exodus 12.15-20. And verses 35 through 36, they then ask the people for items of gold and they plunder Egypt. This is Exodus 3, 21 through 22. However, that wasn't the first time that we read this particular one. This is where it gets really cool because this happens according to the promise that was given to Abraham back in Genesis 15, verse 14. And they leave with a multitude. While there is a number in the text, in reality, the entire scope of the population of Israel is unnumbered throughout the Torah. We're given simply a starting point. In verse 37, we're given a number, 600,000 men on foot, plus women, plus children. And then in verse 38, also a mixed multitude in their midst. And in verse 40 through 41, we're recalled to the covenant of Genesis 15, that it had taken 430 years to the day. Now, it's easy to spot these fulfillments of direct prophecy. When God states, I will do these things, then when those things happen, we're obviously reading a fulfillment of a promise. It takes only a bit of searching to discover these places where these events were told of explicitly. But did you know that this section of Scripture also fulfills in some great ways some implicit prophecies that came before? Now, before we can uh, explore this, we have to ask the question, what is an implicit prophecy? Well, an implicit prophecy is one that's hinted at through other means, but it's never stated outright. In the case of the Exodus, we catch a glimpse of these events in some of the previous interactions of Abraham or with his sons and with Egypt. So, what do I mean? Well, to understand and to see this, we need to pay close attention to the text, not just here in Exodus, but all the way back in Genesis. We need to look back on those previous interactions between Abraham's family and Egypt. So if we turn all the way back to Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. Now, this is just after Abraham's come into the land and just after Abraham's been chosen. There's a famine and we pick up in verse 12. And a famine came to be in the land and Avram went down to Mitzrayim to dwell there, for the scarcity of food was severe in the land. And it came to be when he was close to entering Mitzrayim that he said to Sarai, his wife, See, I know that you're a beautiful woman to look at, and it shall be when the Mitzrites see you that they shall say, This is his wife, and they shall kill me, but let you live. Please say you are my sister, so that it shall be well with me for your sake, and my life be spared because of you. And it came to be when Avram came to Mitzrayim that the Mitzrites saw the woman, she was very beautiful, and Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her before Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house, and he treated Avram well for her sake. And he had sheep and cattle and male donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But Hashem plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Avram's wife, 
And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not inform me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? And so I was going to take her for my wife. Look, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. In this very first interaction of any Hebrew with any Egyptian, Pharaoh took the wife of Avram for himself. As a result of this, God then sends plagues on Egypt in order to convince Pharaoh to let Avram go with his family. And Avram is given much wealth, and Avram is sent away at Pharaoh's command. In these few verses, we see the beginning of a pattern taking shape, a pattern that's now being fulfilled on a much grander scale. This earlier Pharaoh, he didn't have the hard heart of the current Pharaoh. He understood the plagues for what they were. They were a warning to release the one who was not his to begin with, to release the bride of the father, if we use those replacement archetypes. And Pharaoh lets her go, and Pharaoh lets him go, and he gives them riches to entice them to leave. Now, while in Egypt, Sarai was given a gift, the handmaid, an Egyptian slave from the household of Avram. You see, it was not only Avram and Sarai that left Egypt when the Hebrews left. There was at least one other Egyptian that accompanied them. Now, through a series of events that we are familiar with, Avram and Sarai end up abusing Hagar. Uh, but to be fair, Hagar also abused her own place and her status. There's nobody who's innocent in this whole exchange between these two. Uh, this abuse and enslavement it leads to the Egyptian and her seed being exiled from the house of Abraham. And if we turn forward to Genesis chapter 21, we read this story, the story of Ishmael's exile. And in this story, Hagar, the Egyptian, is sent with him. And God has given Abram the command, or at least his permission, to do this. And so we read in verse 14 of Genesis 21, as Abraham sends them on their way. And Abram rose early in the morning, and he took bread and a skin of water, which he gave to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder. Also the boy, and he sent her away. And she left, and she wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. In this verse, the Egyptian slave is set out of the land of Abraham by Abraham's hand. And as she's being sent away, the bread she is given is bound up on her shoulder, and she is sent into the wilderness. Now, this is exactly what it says in Exodus 12:34. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up on their garments on their shoulders. Hagar sent from her home in Abraham's house, the slave being set free from the hands of a master, after the house of the master had become abusive towards her. Now, the story is an early reversal of the Exodus narrative. In this early story, it's the Egyptian that's being freed by a Hebrew, because the Hebrew home had become abusive. Now, if we continue her story, we'll find that she faces an immediate water crisis, which Adonai then provides for, the exact same thing as happens to Israel. And then, even further, the slave encounters God in the wilderness. The story of Hagar is like a mirror foretelling of the exodus of Israel from Egypt. Now, these stories, they contain within them implicit prophecies of what is to come later among the people of Israel. They set the groundwork for the pattern that we're reading now. Now, this is very similar to when Joseph gave an evil report to the sons of the slaves, and then in return became a slave and had an evil report given of him. And if we pay close attention to Scripture, we'll find this sort of thing occurring throughout the pages, from one end to the other. The reversals of roles and symbols 
used to teach a unified lesson. In these passages, we catch a glimpse of what God has in store for his people through more than explicit statements such as the covenant of Genesis 15. We find in these passages patterns being revealed. And here in Exodus 12, we find so many of these promises and even the things hinted at for so long coming to fruition in this one incredible moment in time. And through these few implicit prophecies of the interactions of Abraham and the people of Egypt, we get a glimpse of something that will be developed in later chapters of Exodus. In Exodus 50, Israel seeks to leave Egypt for the purpose of honoring their father Jacob, and Egypt allows Israel to go and even provides an escort for Israel. In Genesis 50, the chariots and the horses of Pharaoh accompany Israel to the land of Canaan. In Genesis 50 verse 9, And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. And then if we turn just forward just two chapters from where we're at now into Exodus 14, we read something that's congruous with this in verse 4. And I shall strengthen the heart of Pharaoh, and he shall pursue them. But I am to be honored through Pharaoh and over all his army, and the Mitzrites shall know that I am Hashem. And they did so. So in Genesis 50, the God of Israel was honored through the army of Egypt as the sons of Israel returned to Canaan. But then in Exodus 14, verse 17, that earlier sentiment is repeated. And it says, And I, see, I am strengthening the hearts of the Mitzrites, and they shall follow them. And I am to be honored through Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. God is to be honored through Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. Just as they did in Genesis 50, the chariots and the horsemen accompanied Israel as they exited the land of Egypt. And then, just a few chapters after this, we're going to read of Israel in a language that steeps them in the symbol of a bride being joined to her husband. They are the people that God is choosing to draw near to humanity through, and he does so by entering into a covenant of intimacy with them. And it's in these stories from Genesis that are so similar to the stories of Israel in Exodus that we see that in each of these stories that tell of the Exodus, they have something to do with the relationship of a husband to a wife, or with the seed of Abraham receiving honor from the people of Egypt. I mean, even the slavery of Joseph in Egypt is reversed in this chapter as a reversal of fortune theme that permeates the pages of Scripture. Joseph, the son of Israel, is bound by his brothers and kicked out of their home and sold into slavery of Egypt. Now the sons of Israel, they're being kicked out of their homes and sent away into service, servanthood, or slavery to God. And this is a truth that also permeates the human condition. All men must serve someone. But there's only one service that allows a person to be free of condemnation and free of the shackles of oppressive slavery. And that's service to the God of Israel. It's a service to freedom. The story of the Exodus is an appropriate thematic close to all of these stories from Genesis. So if this first part of the Parsha is focusing solely on God keeping his promise to Abraham and doing what he has said he will do, everything that's been promised to occur occurring in that single moment, and with our take on Exodus as a desire to take in the revelation of God that's presented in this book, we discover that Hashem is a God that is faithful and trustworthy. He does the things that he promises that he will do. He will not delay to do a thing that he has promised, and when he puts a time frame on something, then it will happen. But his accounting of time is not the same as human accounting. And so while we may see delay in a promise being fulfilled, 
it's not really a delay as such. It is mercy that is allowing for as many as possible to receive the redemption that's been extended to mankind. The rest of the chapter is a description of how to celebrate the Passover in the future, and more importantly, who can participate in the Passover for later generations. You see, there's something more that had to occur in the life of someone who wished to join themselves to Israel than simply covering the door of the house with the blood of the Lamb. Now, the blood of the Lamb was all that was required for redemption and salvation from Egypt, but to continue in community, something more was required. And this is something that's reflected in the New Testament, but perhaps not in the ways that we would think of it occurring. But we'll get to that in just a moment. So the following passage is very confusing if you don't understand a breakdown of various factions outside of the people of Israel according to Hebrew terminology. So as we're reading, we read in verse 43 that no son of a stranger eats it. But then in verse 45 that a sojourner and a hired servant does not eat of it. But in verse 48, we read that when a stranger sojourns with you, they do eat of it. They are allowed and shall be as a native born as long as they're circumcised. This is confusing and it has caused no end of people to throw their hands up in exasperation and ask the question, which is it? Is a stranger allowed to eat the Passover or not? Now, there are several words at play here in the Hebrew that we need to fully understand to make heads or tails of this passage. So, we're going to learn a few Hebrew words that will help us to understand exactly what's going on here. Okay, so first off, say Azrach. Azrach, you got to get that guttural sound in the back of your throat. Now, Azrach, this is a word that signifies a native-born person of Israel. No question about whether they belong. They are blood Israel at this point. Now, I want to add a stipulation that this definition is not one that's truly all that important to God. As we will find countless numbers of people cut off in the community of God in upcoming weeks and months, especially in the book of Numbers, that are, in fact, Azrach. Now, this condition is, however, one that mattered to ancient communities, and so it was one that needed to be addressed. So, the Azrach is the native-born son of Jacob, a blood descendant. So, next is the diametrically opposed classification of Nahar, again, a sound, and Nahar is an alien. And the Khar is one who is a foreigner and who is not interested in being part of Israel at all. This is the hostile foreigner, the person with foreign gods, the person who seeks to subvert or disrupt the worship of Hashem through whatever means. This type of person is not part of the community at all, even if they do live within close proximity of Israel. Now, this is the word that is used in verse 43. The son of a Nahar is not to eat the Passover or to participate in any way. They are forbidden from this covenant memorial meal. The next two words are words that indicate people who are connected to Israel professionally, but not really part of the worship community and not truly seeking to be. These are your co-workers, employees, and neighbors, physical neighbors. They're people outside of your household, but who are not necessarily hostile to Israel. Are people who actually seek the good of Israel, not because of how they worship or their God, but simply because it provides for their own well-being. Now, these words are both found in verse 45 for people who are not to eat of the Passover. The first is a toshav. This is a person who dwells near you or in your land. This is your physical neighbor. The second is a sahir, or this is an employee or a co-worker, one who is a professional associate and nothing more. Each of these types of people, they are not to be allowed to eat of the Pesach meal. 
the Sachar, the Toshav, and the Nachar. All three of these are forbidden. Now, in the midst of this list of who cannot eat the Pesach, there are two who are called out as being allowed to eat. In verse 44, the Aved. Uh, the Aved is a slave or an indentured servant, and he is allowed to participate, but only once they're circumcised. These people were part of the household of Israel. The, the entire livelihood depended upon Israel. Hagar, Abraham's 318 men in Genesis 14. Eliezer from Damascus. All of these would fall under this classification, an Eved. Men who weren't necessarily blood Israel or Hebrew, but were of the household of Abraham. And then there's one other. In verse 48, there is another who is allowed to eat. And this is the Ger. Now, the Ger is a very special designation in Scripture because the Ger is the friendly foreigner, the person who not only lives among you, but who wants to be part of you, who wants to be part of the community. This is the one who seeks of their own accord to join themselves to Israel. And Naaman, the captain of the Assyrian army, who took soil from Israel back to Assyria so that he could worship the God of Israel on the soil of Israel in 2 Kings 5, he would fall under the classification of a Ger. He never changed his nationality or chose to become a Hebrew, but rather he simply wished to worship the God of Israel alongside the sons of Jacob. Ruth is another example of a Ger. She was a Moabite who chose to join herself to Naomi, Naomi's family, and Naomi's God, though she had no compelling reason to do so. She lived among Israel and worked in Israel, but was recognized as a Moabite until the day she married Boaz and actually became an Israeli. Then there's Rahab, uh, the citizen of Jericho who showed mercy to the spies, is another example of a person who was considered a Gair up to the moment that she married into the tribe of Judah. Throughout Scripture, we read that the Gair, this friendly foreigner, is to be treated as the Azrach, the native-born. And we'll discover all throughout the Torah that there is one law for the Azrach as well as for the native-born. There is no law for the Jews and a different law for the friendly foreigner who seeks to worship the God of Israel. There is only one Torah for all who join themselves to the God of Israel. Examples, Leviticus 19.34, Let the stranger or the gare who dwells among you be as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Mitzrayim. I am Hashem your God. Leviticus 24.22, You are to have one judgment for the stranger and for the native, for I am Hashem your God. Numbers 9.14, And when a stranger sojourns among you, then he shall perform the Pesach of Hashem. He shall do so according to the law of the Pesach and according to its judgments. You have one law, both for the stranger and the native of the land. Uh, Numbers 15.14-16, And when a stranger sojourns with you, or whoever is among you throughout your generations, and he would make an offering made by fire, a sweet fragrance to Hashem, as you do, so he does. One law is for you of the assembly and for the stranger who sojourns with you. A law forever throughout your generations. As you are, so is the stranger before Hashem. One Torah and one judgment is for both you and the stranger who sojourns with you. And there's many other examples of this throughout the Torah. That's just four. And here in Exodus 12, we get the foundation of this declaration that's then made throughout Scripture. The Ger. The mixed multitude that left Egypt with Israel in verse 38, they would have been Ger. There's no difference in the kingdom of God between the Azrach, the native-born, and the Ger, the friendly stranger. 
There's no difference in judgment and justice or law between the Jew and the Gentile. I mean, we read this in Galatians 3.28, that there is no Jew nor Greek, and there's no slave nor free, there's not male or female. You are all one in Messiah Yeshua, but this is an idea that extends all the way back to Exodus 12, and even before. And we'll discover that one of the most famous men from the time of Numbers was, in fact, a foreigner. In Numbers 13, we read of the men who were tasked with touring the land of Israel. One of those men, the spy from Judah, was Caleb. Caleb was only one of two men from this first generation who were allowed to enter the promised land because he had faith that Israel could, in fact, take the land. Well, if we continue reading, we discover that Caleb was not a son of Judah. Caleb was a Canaanite. In Joshua 14.6, we read the following. And the children of Judah came to Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Yephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which Hashem said to Moshe, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. In Genesis 15, in the covenant that was cut with Abraham, and in many other places, we discover that the Kenizzites were in fact one of the nations that was to be driven from the land of Israel. Being part of Israel, worshiping the God of Israel, being subject to the Torah of the God of Israel, was never a thing that was based solely on bloodline. And those who would teach that the Torah was only for the Jews have to overlook or explain away these many examples of this truth that have been stated from the very beginning throughout Scripture. And once a person realized this, that obedience to the Torah is not a matter of gaining or retaining salvation, then it's incumbent upon them to obey at that point. And through obedience, then a deeper level of relationship is found. One that's not simply based on inclusion in the community, but a relationship that's based on faithful love and obedience to the God who created our lives and then gave us instructions for how to live life. So while I was examining this chapter, I noticed something else that was rather fascinating. The first part of this Parsha reveals for us that the God of Israel is a God who keeps his promises. If he says he will do a thing, then we can be sure that he will indeed do it. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man to lie, nor son of a man to repent. He has said, and would he not do it, or spoken, and he would not confirm it. Now, these words were actually spoken by a (laughs) pagan prophet, but we'll talk more about that when we get there. The second part of this Parsha here is focusing on the sign of the covenant of who can participate in the Passover memorial. The sign of the covenant as expressed through circumcision. How are these things connected? What's being described here? Is there some thread that runs through these ideas? Well, to discover this, we need to examine the entirety of chapter 12 once again. In Exodus 12, 13, it says, And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I shall pass over you, and let the plague not come on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Mitzrayim. The blood is a sign that will cause Hashem to protect a house from his judgment. That's how chapter 12 begins. But the chapter then ends with a sign of circumcision for any who wish to participate in the memorial of this Passover. And what is the circumcision? Well, if we turn back to Genesis 17 verse 11, And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall become a sign of the covenant between me and you. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant. 
Blood on the doorpost is a sign of being passed over or protected from judgment. Exodus 12 begins and ends with these signs, symbols of God's relationship to man. And then there in the middle, nestled snugly, is the redemption of Israel, the fulfillment of many of the signs that were given before. And in the New Testament, this concept of circumcision is addressed once again. And if we follow the path of the Exodus, redemption comes first, the sign of the blood on the doorhouse. Then comes the sign of the covenant. The sign of circumcision does not allow a person to enter into redemption. If you were circumcised but lived in a house that did not have the blood over the doorpost, you were not saved. The sign of a circumcision, however, is what allows a person to remain in covenant once they've been saved. Now, in the first century, this became an issue. There were those among the new believers who were insisting that the proper way to understand the term ger was to only see it as a proselyte, a foreigner who's gone through all of the steps necessary to acquire legal status as a Jew, to convert to Judaism, as it were. This is what they, what they imposed upon the text of Exodus 12 and other passages that include the word ger. They wanted the friendly foreigner to be someone that looked like them, that thought like them, that spoke like them, but was maybe born in a different house. But with the benefit of hindsight, we know that the circumcision of the flesh, it was always just a symbol of the flesh catching up to a spiritual reality. Romans 4, 7-13 says it this way, Blessed are those whose lawlessnesses are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom Hashem shall by no means reckon sin. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised? For we affirm, faith was reckoned unto Abraham for righteousness. Now when was it reckoned? Being in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of the circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, while in uncircumcision. For him to be a father of all those believing through uncircumcision for righteousness to be reckoned to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had in uncircumcision. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not of Abraham or to his seed through the Torah, but through a righteousness of faith. And the circumcision that's necessary in this day is one that's not made with human hands, but it's rather it's a circumcision of the heart, which, if you read Deuteronomy, is something that was necessary even in the days of the Torah. The shearing away of pride and faith in our own ability to accomplish anything of value in the kingdom of God. It's a removal of stubbornness from our heart. This is the exact opposite of what Pharaoh has done in this story. Over and over, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He was in a position and had the mindset that made humility impossible. He was incapable of allowing shame to rest on himself. He simply could not release his death grasp on his own power. I mean, after all, that's what made Pharaoh, Pharaoh. His hard and uncircumcised heart is something that we see spoken of in connection to the Passover in one of Paul's letters. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks on Passover and how we should keep it, and he offers this advice to those who would participate and those who should not. 1 Corinthians 11, 26-32 For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you proclaim the death of the master until he comes, so that whoever should eat this bread or drink this cup of the master unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the master. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For the one who is eating and drinking unworthily eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the body of the master. Because of this, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we were to examine ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the master, that we should not be condemned with the world. Now, when we traditionally read this passage, it's taken as instructions on how to keep the sacrament of communion. But if we pay close attention to the text, we find that Paul is recommending, at the end of what I just read, a circumcision of the heart before participating in the Passover memorial. But this idea, it's not just limited here. Earlier, I stated that it was with the blood that allowed a person to enter into covenant, but then that there was an expectation of action to continue as part of the community. This idea is reflected for us perfectly in Acts 15. Once again, it's the circumcision party that's raising the issue. A person must be circumcised in order to be saved, they said, in order to be passed over in judgment. But what is required to remain in community, according to Acts 15, 19 through 20? Therefore, I judge that you should not trouble those from among the nations who are turning to God but that we write to them to abstain from the defilement of idols, from whoring, and from what is strangled, and from blood. Now, even in these early Christian communities, it was the blood of the Lamb alone that brought salvation. But then there's a course of action, action that a person must take to demonstrate the spiritual truth, action that reveals that they truly have had a circumcision of the heart. Now in Exodus, those in Israel who took part in the Passover without the sign of the covenant in their flesh were to be removed from the community. And here in 1 Corinthians and in Acts and in other places, we read the apostles warning against partaking of the Passover in Messiah's flesh without the accompanying fruit. That fruit is the sign of the renewed heart and participation in the covenant of Yeshua. Without a circumcised heart, without the fruit that accompanies this, Paul says that there are many sick and weak among you, and many sleep. These have brought judgment upon themselves by entering into the Passover without the appropriate circumcision. Taking part in the Passover without circumcised heart leads to judgment. Who was it that had to be circumcised in order to eat the Passover? Everyone. The servant that was purchased with money had to have a circumcision before he could participate in the Passover memorial. And here's where the promises of God coincide with the sign of redemption and the sign of covenant. The promises that God makes are not only for his people. God has made many promises up to this point, and one that we tend to skip over is the promises of what will occur to those who reject the blood of the Lamb and then to those who accept the blood of the Lamb to escape immediate judgment, but then reject the circumcision. Those who remain hard-hearted even after a profession of faith. We tend to look at God's promises, and from our standpoint of being in community, we see the good promises, the promises of life that He makes. We have to recognize that there are those, even among Israel, who will reject the blood of the Lamb. They will get their judgment when Hashem visits man in judgment. But all who are covered in the blood of the Lamb will be saved from that. But being saved is only the first step. 
After this comes a work in your own life. Do you allow God to circumcise your heart, to take your sin from you, not just the punishment for the sin, but the sin itself? Or do you grasp hold of your sin and stubbornness? Do you not pay the price of redemption that I spoke of last week? Do you continue on with a hard heart and not allow anyone to see your shame or to cut it away? You see, one of the things about circumcision is that you have to reveal your shame to another and you have to allow them to help you cut away the thing that separates you from the covenant. Circumcision requires you to become vulnerable before others, and circumcision requires immunity. No one circumcises himself. And without these things, that open vulnerability with your shame bared before others, you cannot be circumcised. And in the New Testament, the circumcision is one that's done without human hands. It requires giving up pride and self-righteousness in face of the one who is all holiness and righteousness. And circumcision hurts. It hurts bad. But it only hurts for a moment. And it will free you. It will provide a freedom that is not found in the bounds of human institution. And this is where we need to look. The Passover is a symbol of freedom from sin and death, but it's also a symbol of nationhood, of a community and a people who are willing to do what it takes to enter into covenant with their God, a people who are willing to reject the ways of the world and to perhaps, more importantly, to despise the shame that we should feel and to allow others to bear our shame. And this is what it means to live in community. This is what it means to be part of the kingdom. This is what it means to have freedom. Becoming free and living without condemnation before men. And in the end, this is what we must do as we derish chai. We must allow the painful process of the circumcision of the heart to be accomplished within us as we seek life. Because without it, life cannot truly be found. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.